0: and his army leaves town and they leave the palace empty abandoned it must have been a very difficult for, day for David but David had basically made a decision that he would rather face the humiliation of defeat than continue on in a bloody civil war against his own son it may have been one of the worst days in David's life and he probably said to himself it just can't get any worse than this. But it did. There was this commoner by the name of Shammai who stood up on a hillside and threw stones and dirt clods and insults at David, cursing David, saying, God is getting even with you for what it is that you have done to King Saul, you bloody traitor. Now, David had a friend uh, actually someone in his military who suggested why don't i just run up there and run that traitorous coward through with a sword and david said no no don't do that don't kill him let him live maybe i'm just getting what it is that i deserve now if the story ended there we would say david is a great man because he's so magnanimous in letting this insult slide david was a great man but the story doesn't end there as a matter of fact, this memory of Shemaiah insulting David and throwing the dirt clods at David stuck in David's mind for the next decade. And we know this through what he tells Solomon on his deathbed. It just this memory continued to fester and fester until one day the secret of his grudge comes out. That brings us to our text for this morning. It's 1 Kings chapter 2 verses 8 through 10. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Remember you have with you Shammai, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, hey, decades passed. I know I swore before the Lord. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do with him. Now, just in case Solomon's not wise enough to know what to do with him, David spells it out. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. May God bless the reading of his sweet word. You may be seated. Uh, Okay, I'm guessing you noticed David's final words. Bring his gray head down down to the grave in blood. We've done this before where we will memorize a verse in rounds, and so let's do that. Bring bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Okay, we could do that again, and and people could ask you after the service, oh, what what was the sermon about? Well, it was about letting go of a grudge, but we learned this really, really wonderful verse, bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. I, I would think those are really unfortunate last words, don't you think? Now, most of us here are going to go, well, wait a second. I thought David swore an oath to the Lord. I'm not going to put this guy to death. Let it go. Don't put him to death. Let him live. Maybe I'm getting what I deserve. Why does David then, upon his deathbed, insist that Shimei be put to death? Well, you know how it is. Maybe you don't, but I know how it is. Maybe you know how it is when you're getting a beat down physically, emotionally. Relationally, And I'm really sorry for picking at a scab this morning, but for some of you, you remember the time when you were verbally put down or maybe physically or otherwise abused or gossiped against and relationally hurt. In that moment, there's a, a sense of confusion because most of us, just on a gut level, we think, I'm getting what I deserve. I mean, what goes around comes around. And we all know that in the grand scheme of things before God, we do get better than what we deserve. But on a horizontal level, sometimes we get what we deserve. Sometimes we get better than what we deserve. And sometimes we just get a whole lot worse than what we deserve. But we have this instinct immediately to think, well, if this is happening to me, I guess I deserve this. So there's confusion. And then in the midst of the confusion, there's a low sense of self-esteem. I guess I just deserve this. And then, on the other hand, there's also a sense of powerlessness because you recognize, I wish this weren't happening, but I can't stop it from happening. And if I could retaliate, I don't know that I really would know what to do or even have the power to do it. there's a low sense of self-esteem and powerlessness in the moment. And so oftentimes, our revenge gets delayed. I think we see that with David. There's this Dutch psychologist by the name of Dr. Schout and uh, she and several of her colleagues did a survey of about 2,000 different people ages 16 to 89 concerning their experiences in revenge. And what she found out was that only about 14% hit back at their offender the day of the offense. Only 16% hit, 14% hit back with immediacy. 36% will hit back if they do hit back within a week, between a day and a week. 23% will take between a week and a month to visit revenge on the person who's done them wrong. And then another 21% will take between a month and a year. The remaining 5% who ever exact revenge will take over a year, sometimes over a decade. The, 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 the point of all of this is just to, to remind you in light of the studies, in light of David's experience with Shimei, in light of his last words, we know just... Because a person has not yet responded to an offense does not mean that that person is not holding a grudge. Sometimes people can hold a grudge for years, if not actually decades. Let me give you a parallel story here. Uh, there's a, a story that involves Carl Erickson, age 73, who was con- convicted of murder and sentenced to, to death. The reason he was sentenced is because he carried out a murder on an old-time classmate, a high school classmate. Now, people were shocked. Friends and family were surprised that this 73-year-old man who'd been married to his wife for 44 years and had served a, a life as a, an insurance agent would just kind of like snap, but he did because he had a secret. For 50 years, he held a grudge. And it went all the way back to high school in this incident where a classmate in a high school locker room prank put a jock strap over his head. The fellow student was the star athlete of the high school uh, football team, the star athlete of the high school track team. His name was Norman Johnson. And Norman apparently went on to succeed in lots of ways. He got a college scholarship, played football in college and graduated from college and came back to his alma mater where for three decades, more than three decades, he taught and coached. And I guess at a certain point, Carl had had enough. And he says that Jock-strap-over-the-head incident planted a seed of resentment. This con- it continued to grow and grow and grow for over half a century until one day Carl had had all he could take. Knocked on the door of Norman's house, Norman opens the door, and Carl just shot him dead in cold blood. At the hearing, at the sentencing, he apologized to Norman's widow and he said, if I could turn the calendar backwards, I would, but of course he couldn't. See, a, a grudge... Can be a, a dangerous thing, even a small one. You can't keep it hidden forever. Sooner or later, it will escape and maul someone. So the Bible is real careful to tell us not to hold grudges. In fact, the Bible says that love—this is First Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse fifteen—love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep uh, or hold grudges. It, it doesn't keep a, a ledger of indebtedness. Unfortunately for for many of us, when the wrong is done, we replay it in our mind again and again and again as if it's in our ledger and we want to overscore it again and again so we never forget it. So eventually maybe if we feel like it, we can get even with the person. Which by the way, there's a grudge boiling in the back of the stage. It's really distracting but we're going to get rid of this grudge by the end of the service and so I hope that you will be prepared for this. The Bible teaches us don't hold a grudge get rid of it. But unfortunately, some of us, we just kind of keep the record of wrongs. In fact, I, I heard of somebody who literally keeps a book in which he'll write down the names of people who have done other have done him wrong. People have been mean to him and write their names down. This is a, a guy who was a leader, a, the prime minister of Luxembourg, Jean-Claude Juncker. He kept a little leisure. It was called La Petite Maurice, Little Maurice. And everybody knew about this when he was a Prime Minister. In fact, he went on to be the President of the European Commission until a couple of years ago. And so one of the most powerful men in all of Europe, in the European Commission or the European Union, he keeps a little book. And whenever people would cross him, whenever people would oppose some of his legislation or stand against something that he wanted, he would warn them, be careful, little Maurice is waiting for you. It's amazing the things we will write down, and they can be really, really small things, and if we're not careful, if we don't let let go of the small things, they become big things. Like, for example, I could give you all kinds of little examples here. But just a few days ago, I got this call on my cell phone. And it was from the government. And it said, basically, this is your last warning. Uh, your name and information is being used for nefarious purposes, for illegal conduct. You must respond immediately. If you don't call back, and I don't remember the exact language, but it was something like, if you do not respond to this call, black ops marines will land on your roof from a helicopter and then burst through your windows in the middle of the night, shooting off M16s or something like that. Please press one. And so uh, I, I pressed one. Like, okay, what's going on here? And then I get this voice on the other end, which she did sound like this was like her. I don't know, English was her seventh or eighth language. And it's like I'm with the Social Security Agency. And I say, okay. Uh, is this a scam? She says no. And I say, how do I know this is not a scam? And then she hung up. And then I was, <laughs> then I was not convinced. Uh, it, it, but it, it kind of planted something, you just wasted two minutes of my life and I kind of got my heart rate up. And now I'm thinking about all these people who have been scammed before and are going to be scammed. And so I've got to forgive her and then these other people in the past who scammed these other people and some of you are now having to forgive this woman and all the people she was working with because you're offended on my part that I had two minutes wasted. And some of you right now, you're thinking, I, Ernest, I need to forgive you because you've just extended the sermon by two minutes. And all of a sudden, everybody has to forgive everybody. And things like this that are small happen all the time. And, uh, you know, like today, you know, Jeff, I'm so glad that Jeff is back on our soundboard. We've been praying for him. He's had COVID. And so, and so I, I, I told Jeff as we were coming in here, man, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're alive. It's, you know, better off that you're here than not. And then Jeff kind of rebuked me like, well, you know, there is heaven. And it's like, okay, you just Jesus juked the pastor on the way in after he's been compassionate. And so in a public manner, I just want to say we're glad you're here and I forgive you. Uh, but there's little things that happen, and we've got to let go. Oftentimes, though, we don't let go because we'd rather, instead of just kind of let, letting the wound heal and there maybe being at most a little bitty scar, we just kind of put, pick at the scab, pick at the scab, pick at the scab, underscore the legend in our minds, and then there's this grudge, and it grows and grows and grows, and it's ruined our lives. So the Bible says you don't want a grudge. Okay, we get that. How do I get rid of a grudge? That's the question, and there's just three simple things. Uh, I'm going to try to keep this real simple and short here this morning. Number one, admit the problem. Revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. That's an old Rick Warren slogan. Reveal, revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. You've got to admit it. And don't gloss over it. We do have a tendency when we have problems to gloss over or minimize. Don't do that. Just because you're minimizing or denying in a sweet way doesn't mean that your denial is actually helpful or accomplishing anything. It's like the letter that, that it's kind of an old joke where the guy writes a letter and says, Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years, when your dogs used the bathroom all over my yard, you laughed. When I lent you the rototiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted your rap music. I could go on, but I'm not one to hold the grudge. And that's why I'm writing you this letter to inform you that your house is on fire. Cordially, Bob, okay? Just because you deny it sweetly doesn't really help anything. Denial's just denial, so you don't minimize... You acknowledge the problem because the problem's real, it's poisonous. Job chapter 5 verse 2 explains it like this, Resentment kills a fool. So you've got to talk to someone about it, largely God. Job chapter 7 verse 11, Therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Now, of course, acknowledging that a grudge is a problem helps you to admit the problem seeing that it's a problem. I don't know much that the Buddha said, okay, but one of the things he said I thought was pretty helpful, and this sort of resonates with the Scripture, actually. The Buddha put it like this. He said, when you harbor a bitterness, uh, a a hidden anger, a grudge, it's like you're holding a burning coal with the intention of throwing it at somebody. You're the one who always gets burned. Now, you may hit the other person eventually, but 100% of the time, we know you're going to be the one that suffers. And the way that you suffer is relationships suffer, and your personality begins to erode over time. It's not that hard to figure this out. You, you get burned and you say, Well, I'm never going to get close to somebody ever again. And you go into a shell. You get resentful and you become joyless and all the rest. Holding on to a grudge will always erode you. So you've got to let go of the grudge. Okay, admit it. Revealing the feelings is the beginning of healing. Okay, number two, forgive the offender. Forgive the offender. Some people say, I don't want to hear a sermon about forgiving because there are these people... I don't want to forgive. And I get it. But it's not a matter of wanting to. It's a matter of obedience. Harry Emerson Fosdick, late, great preacher, tells about a, an occasion when his mom and dad were at the breakfast table. They were talking with one another. And he overheard his dad tell the mom, uh, you tell Harry that if he feels like mowing the yard today, he can do that. And then as he was leaving, the dad was leaving, he said to the wife, now you make sure that Harry knows he'd better feel like it. Sometimes it's just a matter of doing what it is that you know that you're supposed to do. Uh, Jesus puts it like this in Mark chapter eleven, verse thirty-five or verse twenty-five. Excuse me. One of the more uh, I don't know abrasive verses you're going to run across. Jesus says, "When you stand praying, if if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins." Now that sounds really harsh, but forgiveness is a command and the reality is jesus didn't oftentimes do what it is that he necessarily felt like doing he was obedient to the father but i doubt very seriously he wanted to experience all the pain and suffering and torment of the cross but what we also know as a church and we say this all the time if god commands you to do something he will simultaneously equip you or empower you to do what it is that he commands this is especially true with regards to forgiveness if god commands you to forgive somebody you know that you can forgive them Because God doesn't just give us an example in Christ. Through Christ, he gives us all the forgiveness we need to dispense to other people. Or put a little bit differently, no one else around you will ever demand more forgiveness than you have already been given in Christ. And so consistently, we are without excuse. And so if on the occasion, God tells you, you need to forgive this person, you better forgive them. Because if you don't forgive them, if you withhold forgiveness, it's kind of a double sin, In the moment, at at the very least, temporarily, it is a rejection of Jesus as Lord because he is the one who has authority over you and you're rejecting his authority. But then number two, it's a rejection of Jesus as Savior because you are somehow in that moment confessing that the forgiveness that he has given you is not sufficient or somehow the forgiveness that is required of you is is in excess of the infinite forgiveness of God that is available to you in Christ. You better forgive the offender. Bad if you don't. Then there's a third thing, and we don't often talk about this, but you've got to release the offender to God. This is sort of the completion of the act of forgiveness, if you will. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 reads, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This completes the act of forgiveness, and here's why. When you turn over the person and their future to the Lord... You're essentially turning yourself and your future over to the Lord in a way that completes the healing that God would have to occur in your life. Because, again, here's what social psychologists tell us. Revenge has nothing to do with deterrence. That is to say, people don't take revenge on other people to keep them from doing it again. Revenge has nothing to do with deterrence. It has nothing to do with justice, like we're just evening the scales. That's not the case. Revenge is about two things. It's about returning to yourself a sense of self-worth, and it's about returning to yourself power. At the center of revenge is you, not the other person. Since that's the case, since revenge is all about kind of restoring to yourself a sense of worth and restoring to yourself a sense of power, you, you never get justice with revenge. That's why the revenge does not have to be immediate. Good justice that is a deterrent happens immediately. You know that with regards to your children. They do, they do something wrong. You don't spank them a year later. You know, you, you correct them with some immediacy. Also, you, revenge can't have anything to do with justice because the person is thinking about restoring their sense of power. But when you turn things over to God and you say, God, I give this person to you. I know that it is yours to avenge. It's yours to repay. What you're saying in that moment is, I know that to you, I am of supreme importance. You're not gonna drop the ball. You're not gonna take this case and stick it at the bottom of the stack and maybe you'll get to it in your time because I don't really matter to you as much as these other people. I know, God, that I matter to you with ultimate significance because you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the likes of me. I matter to you. And because I matter to you, I know you're gonna take care of this. And, I know that you are powerful to make things right. I can't even pretend to know what that is. But you do, and you'll make things right. And so as I turn this person and the offense over to God, I get what it is that I most need, a sense of worth and a sense of power, because I acknowledge I am significant enough that that Jesus died for my sin, and I also know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in me, and this God who raised Christ from the dead is at work on my behalf. Then I get what it is that I actually need without having taken revenge for myself because I've turned it over to God. Now how often do we have to go through this process? I don't know. As many times as it takes. Here's how Jesus puts it as he's visiting with Peter. Rather famously, Peter asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister? Seven times? And Jesus responds, no, seventy, not, I tell you not seven times, but seventy times seven. What is Jesus communicating? as many times as necessary. If the nature of vengeance, if the nature of resentment or holding a grudge is keeping a record, then the very nature of forgiveness is keeping no record at all. As long as you're keeping an actual record of how many times you've forgiven this person, you don't get it yet. You haven't arrived where you need to. Because forgiveness isn't about record-keeping at all. It's about taking the entire ledger and throwing it in the garbage. So you forgive as much as needed, as much as the other person needs. If they've sinned one time and they need three reassurances that you've forgiven them, you do that. If they sinned, you forgive. And then they sin again, you forgive again. But if you're still holding on, if you need to go through the process again and again, well, then you do it until eventually you've let go. The point is you do it as much as needed. You acknowledge, hey, I've got this bitterness. And sometimes this happens, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody or accusing anybody, or this isn't necessarily, you know, a poor reflection on you. You have a child, they get hit by a drunk driver, and now they're in a wheelchair, and you have to take care of them maybe for the rest of their life, and maybe every morning for weeks or months or years, every morning you have to go through this exercise where you say to God, God, I've got a grudge, and I know I shouldn't but I forgive this person and I turn them over to you. You may have to do this every day because for some of you, the offense against you is a lot more serious than a scam message on your iPhone. I understand that and so does God, but you forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you release and you release and you release until you're done. And the reality is you can be done with your grudge. Because you are not alone in this. Jesus Christ has supplied what it is that you need. His forgiveness for you. He doesn't just set the example. He gives you this forgiveness. He is your Savior, not just your example. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and God is at work on your behalf. Can you be free of a grudge? Listen, if if Joseph could forgive his brothers for selling him into slavery, if Cory ten Boone could... Forgive those Nazi captors for tormenting her and murdering her family. Jesus Christ can forgive you your many sins. I'm telling you, you can let go. You can know freedom and you can be rid of the the poison and the festering and the erosion of your personality and your hopes and dreams for your own future. This can happen for you. And I'm just going to give you an invitation. It's real simple. Let it happen. This this morning as we participate in communion together, as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to just take the first step or maybe a second step or a hundredth step, but you take the step that you need so as to let go of what it is that is destroying you and has the potential to maul other people around you. Because you don't want to be that person who at the end of his day says, may his gray head go down to the grave in blood. You don't want that to be you, do you? Well, you have a choice. Christ gives it to you. I hope in this time of communion, you'll just use this as an invitation to to go through the process. Acknowledge your grudge, if you have one. Forgive the offender. Maybe do it again. And release them to God. And let God be the source of your worth and of your power. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dearly Father, we just want to say thank you so much for making our freedom possible. And we pray that in this moment that we will respond not just to the offender or to the offense appropriately, but that we will respond to you in this moment appropriately. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite Sarah up here to play as we just participate in and observe the Lord's Supper together. As I mentioned earlier, everyone here is welcome to participate. But, of course, these elements do serve to remind us of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed.